Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Lady Bunny. It was a very artsy, fartsy community. You know, plenty of drugs, heroin being one of the (laughs) drugs that even some of our bosses were on. That and more. But before that, I just want to say I am currently making a video while I'm recording this for our patrons at patreon.com, folks. Uh, So... People watching the video can see the setup here right now. Here is uh, the refrigerator box behind me now with a comforter thrown over it to be the soundproofing. My uh, setup here, the laptop is uh, sitting on ice cube trays because I have an ancient laptop that overheats in seconds if you turn on one program and then that sound leaks over into the microphone. What else here is really (laughs) pathetic? Here's a fan that I've installed over the desk to uh, blow cold air onto the laptop. So you can see we're very, very um, low budget here and hoping to have a real studio one day. You can also see my Rick Perry ate my balls t-shirt that I'm currently wearing that a fan gave me. All right, I'm going to finish this video now so I can talk to you proper. (laughs) The whole point is that you, the Risk fans, can easily help keep the show going through our page at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash risk. The way it works, you can choose to give $1 a month, $3, $5, $10, even $100 a month. Depending on how much you choose, you get access to all kinds of prizes and bonus content like the video I just made. Uh, This week, we want to thank four fans that we love so very much for choosing the $25 a month option. They are Matthew Navarro, Stacey Curry, Johan Pedersen, and Audrey Avera. Thank you guys so much. We have been working like crazy since 2009, creating the show on almost no budget with three full-time employees, more than 20 part-time folks now work for the show to do it all. If you love Risk, you know how irreplaceable and important it is. So go to patreon.com slash risk to get access to our all-star episodes, special videos like the one I just made, pics and other posts we'll be creating just for patrons, video courses, chances to meet us on Skype, personalized versions of stamps.com songs, and so much more. Patreon.com slash risk. I hope to see you there soon. Also, One great resolution you can make this new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. And an easy way to do that is stamps.com. Think about how much time you waste going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage because you use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office you can do from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories. I got a frog in my throat. <laughs> the show where people tell true stories. They never fucked down a shit. <laughs> and we're off to a jolly good start. This week's episode. Well, wait, did I forget? To say this is Nicola Conte behind it, you already got damn well. No! It's Nicola Conte behind me now, you sorry bunch of Contes. <laughs> We're calling this week's episode Uncompromising, like I am, when we have people that write in that say, Please stop letting the goofier side of your personality show through when you host the show. You should sound so much more like. Terry grows of fresh air. And to that I say, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. I think I just, uh, you know, had to get out of the doldrums and just ended up vomiting it all out on you. But yes, today's episode is called Uncompromising. These are stories of people who said, I will not give up on the crazier side of my personality. I will not give up on my dreams. And in the final story, I will not give up on someone I love. That's the tear-jerking one. Now, we're going to start with a super fun story that was shared at our live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We do risk at the Bell House in Brooklyn once a month. The next one is February 22nd. This is a dear old friend of mine. So talented, so fun, so passionate. This is Mary Teresa Archbold, who you can find at maryarchbold.com. Here she is now with a story we call, I Will Follow. I have broken all of my toes, sprained both of my ankles, tore all the ligaments and tendons in my left knee, tore the ligaments and tendons in my left elbow, dislocated both shoulders, and slipped two discs in my back. I was a professional dancer. And really, the only reason you would do all this shit to yourself is love. You have to love it. And I love to dance. I have loved to dance since I was eight years old. And I imagined as an eight-year-old what it would be like to dance in a company and to be on Broadway, and I knew that was my calling, that was my dream, and it was going to happen. So because I knew very young that this part of my life was settled and was definitely on track, I spent a lot of my time searching for another kind of love, the love you kind of get from somebody else. And so throughout my life, I dated a lot of people, and it went like this where, you know, we'd meet and we'd laugh and we'd have great, meaningful conversations, and then eventually they would be like, God, you're so funny. Let's be friends. Yeah, it happened a lot. And it went that way and that way and that way, and I was a senior in college, and I had just gone through it again, except this time it was a little different. He was like, we're graduating. Let's not get into anything serious. And I was like, you're right, right, right. Two weeks later, he was totally in a serious relationship with the girl he would eventually marry. So he actually was cool with getting serious, just not so much with me. 
So I decided to do what any 21-year-old girl does to lick her wounds. I went to a frat party. (laughs) And I started drinking Mad Dog 2020. If you don't know the dog, I recommend it. So I was at this party drinking and having a good time, and my friend, whose room it was at this frat house, said, you know, the phantom is here. And I said, no, the phantom. Now we've all had friends who have phantom roommates. The ones you hear about, but you never see. (laughs) Now I had known Nathan for close to two years, and I had never seen the phantom. And he said, yeah, he's up in the sleeping loft. This was a moment, and I was just drunk enough to seize it. So I put my cute girl face on and decided to climb up the little ladders to the loft. And I slid the curtain back, and there he was, laying there in his jeans, T-shirt, glasses, reading a comic book. (laughs) A comic book. So I said, what the fuck are you doing? There is a party going on in your room right now. Get your shit together and let's get down here and party. And he came down, much to the shock and awe of everybody in the room. And he sat down next to me and we continued to drink Mad Dog. And as the night continued, we just kept looking at each other. He was so cute. He had two dimples and, yeah, two. (laughs) He was doubly blessed. And... We were looking and looking and looking at each other, and I was having such a good time because he wore bifocals. So I kept sitting up really tall going, how do I look up here? And then I'd squat down and be like, down here, up here, down here, up here. He thought it was hilarious. I couldn't have been the first person to do that joke to him, but he thought it was great. And that night he actually asked to walk me home. And he gave me his school sweatshirt, which was like a dress on me because he was 6'2". I'm five feet. And on our way home, we took a little excursion and decided to go midnight sledding. So we found some lunch trays. Yep, it's what you do when you go to school in the Midwest. You sled in the middle of the night. So we were on our asses on the lunch tray going down the hills. And at the end of the last run, we just sat down at the bottom of the hill on our lunch trays. And it was a glorious, beautiful, crisp winter night. And the moon was so bright that it was reflecting on the snow. And it made it look like it was lighting up the moment for us. And as we started to go back up the hill, he said, I gotcha. And he pulled me up onto his back and gave me a piggyback ride up the hill. And he walked me the rest of the way home, quoting Charles Bukowski. I didn't know who the fuck that was. All I kept thinking, I was like, Polish? Poet? I guess. Uh, But it was that simple. We were in love. There was no conversation, are we boyfriend, are we girlfriend, what are we, what are, nope, we were just in love. And a few months later, I was getting ready to graduate, and he wasn't, because he was a year younger than me. I was not a woman, and he showed up at my graduation, and he had to meet my parents, and he showed up at my door to meet us and go there, and he brought me a corsage, and he brought a corsage for my mother. (laughs) Nailed it! Nailed it! 
I was like, this is the one, right? So later that night, we sat in his room and we're like, okay, now what? What's the plan? And he's like, great, my dream is to live in a rural town in Michigan and be a science teacher. Okay, mine doesn't have that anywhere near it. But we kept looking at each other, knowing that this was so special, we had to figure something out. And he was pretty clear he would never move to New York. It would be too much for him. But he thought he could do Chicago. I can live in Chicago. And I thought, this is great for me. I could do Chicago. Great theater, great dance. Chicago it is. It's going to be great. We're into winter. It's fine. (laughs) So the plan was I was going to stay there and wait tables for a year and then go with him the following year. About four weeks into this master plan, he started getting weird. Detached, distant, moody. Not like the sexy moody, just moody. And we weren't really talking, and it was a lot of awkwardness happening, and finally you knew it was coming to a head. So one night I was waiting for him to come home from work, sitting on his futon, and he came in, put his keys and his wallet on the dresser, and came and sat next to me on the futon, and it was very dark. The only light was actually in the hallway, and we were two people sitting there who couldn't look at one another because I couldn't understand what was going wrong. And he finally just said, I'm never going to move. And I felt like I got hit by a truck. We had a plan. We talked about this, and we were actually sober, so it's like a real plan. (laughs) And he just said, I can't live there, I don't want to go there, you can stay here, and you can open Miss Mary's School of Dance. Now, I knew that was never my dream, Growing up in studios, I know what dance moms look like, and that was well before Abby Lee Miller. So that was not going to happen. And I thought, can I give up everything that I love and I have worked my entire life for to be with this man? And I stood up, and I walked out. And the next day, I left the state. And I embarked on what I like to call the summer of tears. So I would just cry all the time. And my summer job was as a nanny to my twin six-month-old nieces. And so I was this sad recent college graduate pushing a double stroller around a suburban town, just crying all the time. I'd cry in 7-Eleven with the stroller, and I'd just like tell them to their little faces, it was so good. I was so in love. I had everything. I had, it was all perfect. And I was 21 to boot. Who has it by 21? And so I was just a mess. And I kept starting to doubt myself. Like, it wasn't real. It must not have been real because I've seen movies. This is not how this shit works out. And after about six weeks of this, my father said, this is your bootstrap moment, sweetheart. Time to figure it out. About two weeks after that, with the help of my parents... I moved to Chicago by myself. And after a week, I had a job at a German ale house (laughs) in Lederhosen. And I had a subletted apartment for $250 a month. I mean, come on, it doesn't get better than that. But it did. Two weeks after that, I actually was on scholarship at one of the dance studios in the city of Chicago. So I was moving forward with my plan and back to my love. And I decided 
Well, I have to go back for homecoming. Yes, gluttony. But I figured I wasn't going to see him. I wasn't going to see him. I was going to hang out with the other friends, the ones that weren't so connected. And we were going to go to parties. And he wasn't going to go to a party. He's the phantom, right? So we're at this house party and not even there 30 minutes before he walks in with his new girlfriend. And I swear, I plastered a smile on my face and held my breath. We didn't make eye contact, but we, God, I knew where he was physically. I could sense him anywhere he was, and I knew he could do that about me, or at least I hoped he felt that way too. And after a few minutes, I just turned to my friend Michelle and said, I have to go right now. We need to leave. And she, being a great friend, was like, let's go. And as we walked out, I heard his girlfriend say, who is that girl? And my friend turned around and said, the girl you'll never match up to, and walked out. Everybody needs a friend like that. So that was going to be it. And I thought, God, there's going to really be no closure. I walked out, and it was just going to end. So I did what any crazy psycho ex-girlfriend does in that situation. The next night, I showed up at his door unannounced. (laughs) I knocked on the door, praying to God his girlfriend wasn't there. And he opened it, and it was just him. He was shocked, but polite. And he invited me in to sit onto his beanbag chair. And I did, and then he offered me Mad Dog 2020. And we started to drink, and within a few minutes, we were laughing and joking, and a few minutes after that, we were kissing. And it was the kiss that takes your breath away. And in one moment, he actually dug his hands into the small of my back. And in that moment, I knew I was his, he was mine. This was real. This was real love. Love is going to conquer all. So in my head, we were back together. This was great. Let's celebrate. We were out of Mad Dog. Shit. So we decided to go to the store to get more Mad Dog because that's how you celebrate. And as we were walking down the hill, he went to step off the curb. And in my joy, in my excitement, I leapt into the air to land on his back in like a piggyback. And as his foot hit the ground, I hit his back and he crumbled like a house of cards. And we both went rolling on the street in opposite directions. And within seconds, he was moaning in pain. And he was like sliding himself to the curb in agony. I kind of stood up, dusted myself off, and walked over and sat down next to him. And he's like, oh, ah, oh, oh, this really hurts, really hurts. And inside, I'm like, dude, I've broken everything. Suck it up. (laughs) And we just sat there sort of quiet for a few minutes with an occasional like, from him. And he just said, I'm never going to leave. And I thought for a moment, can I give it all up for love? Can I give up this love that I was blessed with at the age of eight and all of these dreams? Can I trade that all in to be with this man? And I just said, I'll never stay. And I stood up and I left. I went back to Chicago the next day. 
and my life continued on, and I started to put back together the broken pieces, and he sent me an email. Ten days later, one sentence, you broke my ankle. (laughs) I wrote him back, one sentence, well, it's only fair, you broke my heart. So then I really realized it was over, and I had to put myself back together, and I was living my life like I dreamed, and in reality, that looked more like reading a lot of Toni Morrison books and (laughs) renting a lot of videos from Hollywood Video. Uh, So many videos, in fact, that when my mother came to visit me, I took her to Hollywood Video and introduced her to all the employees. (laughs) But that Christmas, I started asking for self-help books, And I did put myself back together again while I was starting my career. And about a year and a half later, I met a fella who was also a performer. And again, we stared at each other, we connected, and it was love. And again, it was that easy. It was real. And we were together for several years, but it was time for my career to move on, and I needed to move to New York. And I wasn't going to stay for a man. So I moved to New York, and I left him there. One year later, he moved to New York. We are now married, 11 years, two kids, and you know what? I'm gonna dance tomorrow. How lucky am I? I got all my loves in one place. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Trash Can Sinatra's behind me now. And have you heard of Blue Apron? You probably have. They send these fantastic boxes full of super fresh, 
high-quality ingredients to you for for less than $10 per person per meal. You're going to be making some remarkable meals from cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice to udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs to roasted pork with apple walnut and farro salad and crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. That's all just in February alone. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash risk. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to be creating these incredible and very gourmet home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Marcy Bryant. She told it at our recent live show in Dallas, Texas. Marcy is a fan of Risk who had never stepped foot on a stage before to share a story. She was nervous as hell, and she just ended up blowing everyone away. I can't wait for you to hear Marcy's story. But before that, our next story comes to us from one of the most legendary of all drag queens. Lady Bunny is the creator of Wigstock. You've seen her on RuPaul's Drag You and Sex in the City. But Lady Bunny is especially beloved by us New Yorkers because she's been one of the greatest here in New York City. For as long as I've been here, I moved here in 1988, just before Mayor Rudolph Giuliani started doing everything he could to take all of the fun out of the seedier side of the city. And around that time, like me and my friends in college just looked to Lady Bunny as like a hero, a partying hero. So this 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 story is set in a very, very messy time. Now there's an issue that comes up in this story that I want to just give everyone fair warning about. The issue is blackface. Blackface is something that happens in the story, and it's also something that when it comes up in most contexts, a lot of people find very offensive, very hurtful. I think we can all agree it was never okay, not in the 1800s when it was popular, and not in 1983 when this story is set, but I think a lot of white people are a lot more aware of that today than back then in 1983 and bunny acknowledges that and she also i I know this is going to be controversial and i respect that but she also does acknowledge that her intentions at the time were to pay homage to another drag queen a predecessor of hers and we'll play a clip from that routine from mr jerry walker routine and you'll hear just how wonderful and inspiring and you you can understand how someone would want to pay homage to it so you know i asked bunny tell me a story about the messiest you ever were and so we're gonna call this one messy I moved here in about 1983. 
three and became a resident go-go dancer at the Pyramid Club, which um, had drag queens dancing on the bar. And the Pyramid was a sex club because, I mean, I was like one of the house queens. So if I needed to take somebody to a corner, we did. And I mean, I don't think the security would have been that rough because they were doing it in a different corner and I was trying to do it with them. You know, so it was a very artsy, fartsy community. You know, plenty of drugs, heroin being one of the <laughs> drugs that even some of our bosses were on. And um, it was a messy East Village when the East Village was bohemian and wacky and the Pyramid was the gay club. Although it was actually quite mixed, which I miss. But uh, anyway, so Madonna was, you know, coming up at that point. I don't know her to hang out at the Pyramid ever but it was a very insular scene which had its own stars people are like you don't remember this movie or you honey we were in the clubs we were home you know we'd come from boring places and this was a concentration of interesting people we were in paradise and we had no interest in the outside world whatsoever I mean, we had no interest in films tv i mean we were interested in our own Stars, And I mean, there were people like Ethel Eichelberger, who was a very well-known drag performer who wrote her own plays, and they were reviewed by the New York Times. There she is, you know, dancing on the bar right next to me at the Pyramid. So, I mean, it was like, it taught the drag queens that we could do other things besides lip sync. I mean, there were drag queens fronting bands. There were drag queens doing stand-up comedy or their own music, or one had a dance troupe. I mean, it was, um, it was an interesting scene. The first night that I worked there, I go-go dance. I was staying with my sister who lived on 4th between C and D and was walking home drunk with my first ever pay from getting in drag and some Puerto Rican kid popped up from behind a car with a gun in my face and said, give me all your money. And I looked at him and ran. I was like, honey, I'd gotten paid 50 damn dollars. And um, there was no way that you were going to take even the symbolic of the the first money I made in drag. You know, me thinking I'm coming to you. You are not. My life is worth less than $50 at that point. And it has depreciated considerably since. And let me tell you, There was a director named Nick Zed who I dated. He was the only man that I ever lived as a woman for briefly because I got up the next morning after seeing him at a club and going home with him and put that fucking wig back on and shaved. And let me tell you, that is a busted feeling. <laughs> that is a busted feeling. When you see last night's, you know, you're thinking of it in these glowing terms and the hot sex and you mosey over to the sink and realize, oh, have to put all that back on again, except that you didn't have your makeup with you so that you had to just kind of shave through the remaining crud that wasn't eaten off by a large penis jamming in and out of your mouth and removing all the makeup from your stubble. So, I mean, well, there was one performance because when we were, quote, dating, unquote, 
he put me in one of his shows and someone in the cast, well, it wasn't unusual for several members of the cast to take lots of acid. And one, it was discovered had a knife during the show and had a beef with Nick, the director. So I think at one point I said, okay, I'm out of here because it was like, you're in a show with someone tripping out on multiple hits of acid who has a beef with the director who may also be on acid and this is not the <laughs> this is not the cutting up <laughs> that you're used to <laughs> not with a knife no moving my way up through the ranks of you know pyramid uh, drag queens I started to do shows I was always included in other people's shows but when I wanted to do my own as opposed to just provide <laughs> don't laugh eye candy at one point 25 years ago it was <laughs> even with the horrible wigs and makeup that I only could afford back then There was a song, not well remembered, called Call Me Mr. Telephone by an artist named Shane or Chain, C-H-E-Y-N-E. And so we came up with the idea, even though I didn't do song parodies back then, to do Call Me Mr. Unicorn because we were obsessed with unicorns. The reason being is that Ringling Brothers or one of those big circuses had a unicorn in one of its shows back in the mid-80s, and it was all the rage. I mean, the publicist was working overtime because, I mean, literally, you could not get away from the unicorn coverage. And coming from the 70s, where we all wanted to dismiss all the owls and the unicorns and the rainbows anyway, you know, I mean, this just drove us out of our cotton-picking minds. I mean, completely out of our minds. So we had uh, chefs, like pastry bags for like piping icing and we filled it with chocolate pudding and in our drunken artsy fartsy minds we thought this was the pinnacle of our careers because we had actually taken a topical subject like this unicorn and had it shit on stage while dressed as unicorns with a song that we had changed the words to unicorn i mean it was unbelievably low rent but we were thrilled with ourselves I drank so much back in those days that I would frequently black out. It just so happens that on one night when they'd given me a show called Lady Bunny's Dollhouse, I was blacked up as well in blackface because I had found a comedy album. I don't know if you know Rudy Ray Moore, but um, he did a lot of movies with a superhero called Dolomite. It's totally black exploitation 70s era, but he was kind of on the same Chitlin's circuit where they recorded comedy albums as I guess the one that would have made it biggest would be LaWanda Page, who was Aunt Esther on Sanford and Son. So, I found a couple albums by this drag queen comedian from the Chitlin Circle named Mr. Jerry Walker. And it was the most insane thing that I'd ever heard. And I guess I was vaguely aware that when, you know, artists in the distant future, 30s or whatever, did blackface, that it was offensive. But that didn't really cross my mind. One, because I wasn't trying to denigrate 
black people in any way. I was trying to impersonate a black drag artist who I thought was really hilarious. And since then, I've become aware of how offensive blackface is, and I doubt if I would do that now. But Mr. Jerry Walker... um, the thing that I really loved was this one thing where he was kind of like defending being a drag queen in such a sassy way that it was like, you know, if you take your own little finger and try stirring your own little pot, you wouldn't have time to worry about my business or try and figure out what kind of pussy I've got. And I was just like, this is genius. And he had another one where it was a song called Upstairs, I guess, but it was like, just referring to different members of the audience. These albums, comedy albums were recorded live. So we would just go around, uh, see that man got on all that green. I hear he got some hot nuts, but can't keep it clean. You can take it upstairs, upstairs, upstairs. You can take it up. They just go around to everybody. I mean, just, just insane. And so my goal, I edited bits and pieces of this act together to perform as Mr. Jerry Walker. And uh, Mr. being particularly crazy because certain drag queens, especially old school, really old school, like I know I'm old school now to the young queens, but um, that like you would call yourself Mr. You know, Jerry Walker or Mr. Charlie Brown was the famous one in Atlanta who ruled the roost for decades, still kind of does in Atlanta. And um, there was a law in New York where you could only have on three or four items of women's clothing in the 60s that Jane County, the punk transsexual icon, told me about. So, you know, if you were stopped by the police and you were swishing down the street, then if you had on um, men's underwear, men's socks maybe used as falsies but they 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 broke it down you know like that i mean like maybe you could have on a dress and you know women's shoes but no pantyhose or jewelry i don't know i mean i'm sure it was selectively enforced because especially back then when there were no lgbt rights you were just considered an undesirable and rounded up but in different parts of the country, you could be a female impersonator, and I'm talking way back in the 50s, if you called yourself Mr. So that there was no, even if your illusion was realistic, you could fool them. So it also kind of said, I'm not a transsexual. This comes off. This is an illusion. And I don't know exactly what the specifics are, but they did call themselves Mr. You know, Jerry Walker, and Jerry Walker was one of these. So I had high hopes for this night, Bunny's Dollhouse. The owner of the club had been to the first night of it a week earlier, and as a thank you for how well it went, dumped a beer over my head after the show. So this was the second week, and I really had to prove myself. So um, he never really liked me. Yeah, he never really cared for me. So um, that wasn't my in with the management. I'm, my, my in was a different <laughs> queen. But um, so, so my preparation consisted mainly of getting so stinking drunk that it wouldn't matter that I had, you know, not memorized the lip sync, you know. This is the thing, I mean, when you're thinking about, I mean, I mean there were maybe 200 people there, you know, if, I mean, that would be a, a large estimate. But I mean, there, even if it was full, there would only be 300 people that fit in the pyramid. So it was like, and half the audience would be on heroin. <laughs> half of them would be, you know, blind drunk. So, but the thing is back then is that since we'd come from a culture of such... Like you, you impersonate, you know, Tina Turner, 
Barbara Streisand, Melissa Manchester. These really like everything you're supposed to do is classy. And that was a real reaction against that, you know, moving up here with RuPaul and kind of creating our own kind of vibe and we thought that was all boring so it was much more interesting to us since we didn't have it together to sing or even afford to be able to make backing tracks is that we would find these twisted rare records and make that our act now the person who did that most famously is Lipsinka who has incredible audio clips from films that she splices together into a real far, far on a far higher level than any of us ever did back then but i do not remember much about the night except what other people have told me and a lot of them were there but i was so drunk now i do remember meeting a very good looking guy in the stairwell and luring him attempting to lure him because it didn't work the first time a couple times with me to the bathroom downstairs which is where we would fool around and i don't know if it was related to him resisting my rather aggressive advances or whether it was because he was straight and he bashed me or whether I got what I was asking for because I refused to hear I'm like I'm going to really try to come on to somebody in blackface I mean and it was like a matronly blackface with a short wig and a long dress so honey I was nobody's (laughs) fantasy I mean, it was like a Tyler Perry look almost. So if that's your fantasy, yeah, you Anyway, so I don't know. Some say I may have fallen on the stairs. Some say that this guy might have punched me. But I became aware that through the blackface, there was a huge gash above my eye where I'd either fallen or had been punched. I don't think it. I don't think that that's what it was. But everyone was telling me that I had to get stitches the thing is I have a low fibrinogen content in my blood that's a clotting agent sorry my mom's a nurse and um, I'm not a hemophiliac but it does take longer to stop bleeding than most people and this was a pretty bad gash but I was drunk and I had dick on my mind because of this you know guy and who doesn't have dick on their mind when they're drunk or in their 20s so they were all saying bunny you, you had to get stitches in this right away because the blood was gushing and I'm sure that I was too drunk to even explain I have this low clotting agent in my blood it's gonna stop it's not as bad as look but they all insisted which is actually quite sweet of them because honey trust me they were all bombed too everyone that was helping me was bombed everyone in the place was bombed so they tried to get me ready to go to the emergency room they tried to wipe the blackface off but it was proper grease paint this was not like a, a bronzer this was black grease paint like almost shoe polish so it didn't come off at all and of course they didn't want to rub around the wound and so in that condition they got me to the emergency room and when they wanted me to sign in at the desk (laughs) I somehow summoned the lunacy to lie and say I'll have you know I'm a world-class entertainer in that look. I mean, come on. I mean, this is really like, and and I mean, of course, my friends who were drunk were howling over it, but all they could ever get from me was an X because even in that state, I had the 
state of mind to know to act grand and offended if they didn't know my name, even in like a half smudged blackface. So then they got me in and laid me out. The doctor, you know, kind of cleaned it and I bolted up. Because I never wanted to go to the emergency room. I wanted to keep drinking and get dick. I bolted up and flew out an emergency exit to where everyone, hospital staff, my friends, had to come running after me. They said, Bunny, you had the strength of 10 men. It's like you were determined to get away from them. And that was just all there was to it. So finally, they got me back down, quieted me and got the stitches in. And I remember looking over at some friends. One of them was on heroin and was passing out, nodding out. But that's kind of sweet, right? Your junkie friend is in the hospital with you, like nodding out from heroin. That's sweet. That is a friend. And so... At the end of it all, they they asked me, they, they asked my friend, and this is all from them telling me what they said. How did she get so dirty? Because you see, by that point, I had my own blonde hair and drag, but like a half-assed, tried to wash it off and it didn't even work. But, and I was like, honey, at least they called me a she. That's the, that, that was the win in that situation. But yeah, that was the, I, I mean, I don't remember ever getting a bill for that. So I'm sure they just gave up on whatever that thing was. But that was a true crazy taste of the east village like my you know me <laughs> in the early 20s as a blacked out drunk who was in blackface i'm glad people didn't have cell phones back in the mid 80s because there there were tawdry moments i mean everything from sex to in all states of disarray half drag half blackface i mean at one point two sailors during fleet week had come to the pyramid and were sitting with me in between them not even in drag buying me pizza at Ray's Pizza and coming back and having beers and it was just like and then alternately going into the bathroom to have sex with both so that was insane that was a really insane moment but um, I performed for the troops fellatio was all I could manage but they seemed to enjoy no that was just like being like a sailor's girl like you know with their arms around me at the I mean that was just like it was uh definitely bohemian definitely not corporate it was a lot of the stuff that we miss today but then again you have to ask am i that person that wants to be that off today and i don't i don't think i do you know not that i don't have my moments but i don't want to be i don't want to be that much of a wreck you know to where to where i'm falling and 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 going to the hospital that's not that's not uh-uh, no, hangover's bad enough. Stitches. Uh-uh. You see, I know I'm not the only freak. And some of you out there is high. But you can come on out tonight because I'm on tell. I'm pulling I'm pulling the cover off of you. You laugh and giggle at me, but I'm pulling the cover off of you tonight. Just because y'all see me walk around in my stowball curl, 
Everybody know goddamn well that I ain't no real girl. But what have you got to take and what have you got to give? As long as I live the life that I love. And baby, I love the life that I live. Now I know some of you sit out there, you giggle and laugh when you see me passing by. And then some of you dirty son of a bitches got nerve enough to sit out there and say, I wish that damn thing would die. But baby, if I got any malice in my heart against any of you, I beg God to forgive. Because I'm doing my thing. I live the life that I love. And baby, let me tell you, I love the life that I live. You take passion as sex. You know passion is a big word for some of us. But passion is nothing but sucking fucking whatever it is you like to do. But passion is something that none of us can explain. But some of you so damn nosy, you want to know how come I love a man. Well, baby, if you stand out there, take your own little finger and try stirring your own little pot, you wouldn't have time to worry about my business or try to figure out what kind of pussy I got. So won't you leave me alone and let me live? And I'm going to live the life that I love. And for everybody out there that don't like me, baby, I really don't give a damn. Because I am the fairy godmother. I live the life that I love. And I love the life that I live. My daughter, Beth, um, was 13, and she had an older brother, David, who was 14, and twin three-year-old brothers. And you would think that as a 13-year-old girl with brothers with all kinds of issues, she would be a middle child, but not our Beth. My daughter was the star of the show and any show that she ever did. She would be much more comfortable up here than I am. She is or was an incredibly talented young girl, really into musical theater, really into anything that she could do to get attention and love, and she loved other people, and she was spunky and funny, did stand-up comedy in fourth and fifth grade. Okay. And she had just hit 13 when, out of the blue, I get a call one Wednesday night, and it's our church. Um, David and Beth, my older two, were in uh, the youth group at our church, and I get a call from a youth leader saying, Mrs. Bryant, you need to come up here. Your daughter has told someone that she has tried to kill herself. Wow. And so I put on my shoes, but honestly, at the time, I thought, there's no way this is a true story. You know, this is Beth. This is my daughter. She's obviously made this up. And honestly, I was a little bit mad. I was like, why would you make up this? So I'm putting my shoes on, and I'm trying to tell my husband what's going on, and he can tell that I'm mad. And he's like, Marcy, you can't go up there mad until you know what's going on. You know, don't go up there mad. And I, of course, did not listen to him. And the whole way there, I was like, oh, I'm going to kill her. Why would you make up a... Does she not realize how serious this is? This is serious business. You don't make up stories like this. And I get to the church, and it's a sea of concerned faces. And then there's my daughter. And she's sitting there, and she is calm. Like, if you would think that she would not be calm, 
but she is perfectly calm, and she proceeds to tell me, and she tells me this in a voice that is similar to the way you might describe what this venue is like tonight. (laughs) Completely mundane. Well, this year's been pretty hard on me, Mom. This semester has been pretty hard. My, um, none of the girls in my class want to sit with me at lunch. And gym class has gotten really bad, and I've been being bullied a lot. But I thought everything was okay because, you know, I had friends at church at least, and so at least when I came up here, I was loved and accepted. Until this past Sunday, which was Mother's Day, (laughs) and no one wanted to sit next to me even here. So I decided I just didn't want to do this anymore. And so on Monday night, I took a handful of ibuprofen, and I woke up the next morning, And since it didn't work, I took even more ibuprofen on Tuesday night. And then this morning, when I woke up, I took a handful of ibuprofen to school with me in a baggie, thinking I would take it later in the day. And so she was going to take it at her during the gym class that she hated so much. And she gagged on it and had thrown up most of them, and she hadn't gotten most of them down, which is a miracle, and she the only reason that she had survived. So... I decided that it's time to take her to the hospital because we didn't know if we needed to get her stomach pumped or what we needed to do. And honestly, even to this point on the way to the hospital, I'm in complete denial until we get to the um, hospital and the ER nurse is putting in all the information and it says on the screen, reason for admittance, attempted suicide. And that was like being slapped in the face. It was like it all came crashing in. My daughter had attempted suicide. My baby girl. I have struggled with self-esteem my entire life. My entire life I have wanted to make my daughter at least someone that had confidence and was the strong, able woman. And I'd obviously failed miserably to do that. I'd never wanted those insecurities. I know how mean seventh grade girls are, but it makes no sense to me, and it really made no sense to me how 13 years of love and care could be overridden by three months of bullying. How is that possible? What did we do wrong? So we're transferred to children's, and I finally have some time alone with Beth when we're not surrounded by nurses, and I take her hands, and I look in her eyes, and I say, Beth, I need to ask you some questions. And understand, you're not going to be in trouble, but I need you to tell me the truth, no matter what, no matter how hard it is. You have to tell me the truth. Did this really happen the way that you said? Yes, Mom. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you some even harder questions. And boy, these are some hard questions if you've never had to ask this of someone. I had to ask my daughter if my husband of 19 years that I love and adore has ever, ever touched her. And she says, no, Mom, which is a huge relief. Has your brother, she has an older brother, they were sharing a room. Has he ever touched you? No, Mom, it's nothing like that. It's just what happened at school. And I refuse to believe it. She speaks with a child psychiatrist. um, And the psychiatrist comes to me and says that because she has admitted that she attempted suicide, state procedures are that she be admitted to a mental facility. 
and that at that time, we would basically no longer have custody of our daughter until such time that it was deemed safe for her to return to us. And what do you do? The only facility that was covered by our insurance was in Denton, an hour and a half away. It was horrible. The time that my daughter needs me the most, and I can't be there for her. I can't do anything. They transfer her to Denton, and we are allowed a 30-minute visit once a day in a cafeteria surrounded by strangers where we can be monitored. We get no information from the hospital. And meanwhile, my husband and I are questioning every parenting decision we have ever made regarding any of our children. And we did everything we knew what to do. And let me tell you this, there is, CSI has nothing, nothing at all on um, parents of suicidal teens. We were searching for clues like you would not believe. <laughs> it was, we tore her room apart. We looked for everything that I'd ever seen on the internet about teen suicide, said there should be a note, there should be dark poetry, there should be something that indicates what's going on with your kid. And there was nothing. We checked email. We went through every piece of notebook paper we found. Nothing. I get a call from this hospital that's supposed to be helping my daughter from a nurse saying, can we medicate your kid? And I'm like, no, you can't medicate my kid. I haven't spoken to a doctor. So they, the psychiatrist calls me, obviously driving somewhere. This is the psychiatrist that's supposed to have seen my child. And he's like, now Beth is 16, right? No, she's 13. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, she's been pregnant, right? No. No, that's, that's not my daughter. But she has trouble at school. I'm like, no, she's an A student. And he was like, but, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen some behavior. I'm like, she's never been in trouble. She's never been to the principal's office. She's a good kid. She was a Girl Scout until last year. We sold cookies. That's it. Nothing. And he's... He's like, okay, well, let me just tell you about this medication. This is her doctor. So I agreed to the medication because the last thing we wanted to do was be labeled uncooperative. We wanted her back. So she's medicated. And then I get a call that it's time for the family meeting and that we should prepare for it. But first of all, do we want our daughter to return? And I'm like, of course we want her to come back and live with us. And she's like, well, you wouldn't say that if she tried to kill you. And that's who my 13-year-old daughter was in the mental institution with, in group therapy sessions. And my daughter was a very innocent, very sheltered 13-year-old girl. And she's in there with girls from ages 5 to 17 with all kinds of mental illness. And yet every visit, she is calm and centered and acts like it's just like a vacation. While surrounded by chaos and arguments and screaming, it is the craziest thing I've ever experienced. So we're told to prepare for the family visit, and if the family meeting goes well and the therapists sign off on it, then she'll be allowed to return home to us. And we were prepared. We were prepared to offer her anything to make this better for her. We were willing to do anything. And so we go to the meeting, and I'm ready. We're going to find out what this is. All right, Beth, would you like to talk about how everything is going at home? And she's like, everything's great at home. There's no problems at home. It's just what's been happening at school. And I'm like, come on, give me something. I really want to help her, and there's nothing I can do. 
And so they let her come home. And we start this process. We did everything that they told us to do, every single thing. We had her tonsils and adenoids removed to make sure she was getting a good night's sleep. We moved her older brother in with the twins, three boys in a room, so that she could have her own room. And we redecorated it in her favorite colors. And we had all of her friends and family write love notes, and we put them in a love box. And we had inspirational post-it notes all of our entire house. We did everything that we were told to do. And yet our daughter seemed to come in and out of focus constantly. Weird decisions started being made, things that made no sense to us at all. She was cast as the White Rabbit. She's really into theater. She was cast in White Rabbit as the White Rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. And um, the day that the show ended, her friend tells me that she's been cutting herself. And I go and ask Beth, I'm like, have you been cutting yourself? And she's like, yeah. Just like that. Yeah, look. Why? I don't know. It just seemed like it was kind of what people do when they're depressed. Where are you reading this? How did you get? Th- Why would you make no sense whatsoever? So we pulled her out of school. She was in and out of school during this whole time. One day, um, one of the things the therapist had told us to do was it was very important for her to get exercise, that physical exercise can help with depression. So she was supposed to be walking home from school every day. Well, one day when driving to go pick up my oldest son, I just had one of those mom instincts that, thank God, I followed, and I decided to go check on Beth. And I went down the route that she was supposed to take, and I get to the end of it, and she's not on the route She is not there. She is walking the opposite direction at the street. And so I pull over and got the twins in the back and I'm kind of mad. I'm like, what are you doing? Where are you going? I decided to run away. What do you mean? Your birthday is in two weeks. We're planning a big party and you're running away? Where are you running to? I don't know. I just thought it sounded like a good thing to do. Weird. Weird stuff, and we just had no choice but to accept and love this stranger that has replaced our daughter and just assume that for the rest of her life, she was going to be depressed and angry and lack any form of emotion whatsoever. She didn't laugh. She didn't cry. I did. I would laugh and cry about all these things, mostly cry. I cried more during this time than I ever have in my entire life. But she never did. Spring break, eighth grade year, she is swimming with friends at the pool, and she starts having horrible stomach cramps. We take her to the emergency room thinking it's appendicitis, and it turns out that it was a um, 15 centimeter or five and a half inch ovarian cyst attached to her right ovary. And so we have it removed. And... Three days after the surgery, which is very much like a cesarean section, um, three days after the surgery, she she was watching TV, and I'll never forget this. She was watching something, and she laughed. And it wasn't a, huh, it was a belly laugh. One of Beth's, like, signature, you would know it if you heard it, belly laughs. It's something I hadn't heard in over a year. Something that was truly a miracle. And from that point forward, she continued to return. And now we have Beth back. When 
I had asked the surgeon about the cyst. I said, could this cause mental instability? And he said, maybe some hormonal fluctuations, but don't look it up. It'll scare you to death. So, of course, <laughs> I looked it up. And, but even then, I didn't dare to hope. But it turns out that there are certain types of ovarian cysts called dermoid or also um, teratomas that can... Um, her cyst had a couple of teeth, an eye, and hair. Um, these things, really, you can look it up on Google after this. That's true. They, they are the parts of the body that create babies. And on a rare, very rare occasions, these cysts can also produce brain cells. And her mind was trying to communicate with the cyst, and it was really driving her crazy, and it was making her completely devoid of emotion. And that's what happened to my daughter. But I can't tell you how much closer all of this drew our family and how even in a difficult place like this, we were able to continue to love each other. And so I want to encourage you that if you ever feel like you have lost your baby, if you ever feel like you are losing someone, just please continue to love them. And maybe that love will keep them alive long enough for them to find their way home. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is grace potter behind me now i the song is about romantic love but what the heck (laughs) we figure it's a good stand-in that was marcy bryant we just heard from our live show in dallas texas don't forget you can comment on the episodes on the listen pages at risk-show.com we know Some of our stories are very controversial in this or that way and that people often want to express themselves about, uh, well, all sorts of thoughts and feelings that bubble up because of the stories. We very much respect that and uh, we try to engage in the conversation sometimes as well. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. And if you become a part of our Patreon community by donating $1 or $5, $10, $25, whatever it is per month, you'll have access to all sorts of extra content and be able to communicate with us in different ways there, too. So that's at patreon.com slash risk. Now... 
let me read off to you where Risk is appearing next. On February 17th, we are in Carborough, North Carolina. If you are anywhere near Carborough, North Carolina, come on out and see us on February 17th. On the 18th, we're in Los Angeles. We're back there at the Bootleg Theater. On February 22nd, we are back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. And on March 18th, we're in Burlington, Vermont for the first time ever. <laughs> Burlington, the theme that night is idiots. Uh, now, that means usually I think the stories are going to be where the storytellers themselves are revealing times they've been idiots. So pitch us your stories at risk-show.com submissions. People who are anywhere near Burlington, Vermont, or can be there on March 18th. We have a specially scheduled show for April 9th at the Bell House. That's because New York Podfest is happening that weekend. So April 9th, we'll be back at the Bell House. And let's see, on May 20th, we're coming back to Denver, Colorado. The theme that night is Irresistible. May 20th, Irresistible is the theme for our show in Denver, Colorado. Pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget, we teach storytelling, too. We do it one-on-one -on -one with people, sometimes over Skype. We teach groups of people. We teach entire staffs of companies. You can even download entire video courses that we've created and learn in your own time at your own pace. Just look all of that up at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Ha, 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 ha,